of Mark. We've been several weeks now in the Gospel of Mark trying to see uh, what Mark would communicate about who Jesus is and what he's like. And this morning we are in Mark chapter 2, and I will start reading in God's Word from Mark chapter 2, verse 13. This is God's Word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Well, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray that we would have hearts that just want to see Jesus. Reveal the greatness and the glory of your Son, through your word, through the preaching and hearing of your word this morning. And if there's areas in our hearts that that don't long for that, the revealing of Jesus, God, convict us and change us and open up our eyes that we might see great truths in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week there was a scandal that kind of went across the U.S. I don't know if you heard of it. It happened at a Dallas Cowboys football game. In one of the boxes was a former president, George Bush, and scandal of all scandals, he was with Ellen DeGeneres. Of course, this blew up on the internet, and it received uh, quite a stirring from both sides, parties from both sides. As you know, the George Bush and Ellen DeGeneres, they are different on a lot of their views, of the way they look at life, their politics, the way they live. Lots of differences there, and them being seen together and seemed somewhat happy kind of stirred up those who were kind of in their separate camps. So much so, they, they thought that this was a scandal that they could be sitting together to enjoy a game. People who just merely saw the picture that they were together. It seemed scandalous to them. They're so opposite, they're so different, they're so opposed, and yet they're not unhappy. And when I saw that, I thought, man, people haven't changed. It's a similar set of circumstances that leads us to Mark chapter 2, where there's Pharisees to start questioning Jesus. There are people that see Jesus with certain parties, and they start questioning. This is scandalous. Something's wrong going on here. They're supposed to be opposite ends of the spectrum, and yet they're together. So how does that work? And so Jesus is questioned. He's questioned about eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's questioned about fasting. And all these questions lead us into some implications for our lives and how to live our lives because of who Jesus is and because of what he does. 
And after Jesus, we saw this last week, he's with this crowd, he's healing, he heals this paralytic. After he's with this crowd, being in a house, maybe he got a little claustrophobic, but he goes out after this. Often the pattern is he's with crowds and then he goes to be out somewhere. And this time he goes out by the sea. And he's out there teaching, says verse, thing, verse 13. He's out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Characteristic of Jesus' ministry was him teaching. It's one of the reasons that he came. And it continues saying that as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Levi, or we might know him as, as Matthew in other Gospels, is at his tax booth. He is a tax collector. This was a place, the tax booth, where they would have to pay tolls. He was collecting taxes. And he wasn't just collecting taxes, but to pretty much everybody around him, like he was being despised. This was the place that even epitomized where he would be despised, doing the very thing that people would despise about him in collecting taxes. You see, tax collectors were collaborators. They were collaborators with the Gentile occupation, the Romans over the land, that they were in cahoots with them, working with them, taking taxes for them so that they could pass them on to them, but keep a little bit for themselves. And so tax collectors were considered thieves and robbers. They would tax people and keep a little bit for their own lives, give the rest to the Romans. And you can see how this is a zero sum for the Jews. They didn't like either one of these things. They didn't like someone being greedy, and they didn't like paying the Romans. So tax collectors received the brunt of their uh, dislike. Jews didn't like them. If you were Jewish and you did this, your your family was disgraced. Maybe you were disowned. And every tax booth that they would have seen along the way would have been another reminder that they don't control their own fate. Another reminder that they're not in control of their own land. That the Jews are in their place, but they're ruled by another country, another nation, another ruler. That every booth is saying, Rome rules here, you do not. Rome gets to decide what they do and don't do. You do not. Every tax booth would have been a reminder of this. And Jesus doesn't avoid this place, doesn't avoid tax collectors or tax booths, but he goes to it. He, Jesus, represents a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom that reaches across national, social, political, economic barriers. It's because it's a kingdom that is not based on earthly standing, social standing, social status, alliances, earthly power, earthly alliances. It's a kingdom that's based in God's sovereign rule, God's sovereign power. And as the sovereign one, God graciously invites sinners to be a part of his kingdom. He invites his enemies to have life with him because of who he is and what he's done. So Jesus walks by this tax booth, and he doesn't ignore Levi. He doesn't hurl insults at him. He doesn't slam his tax booth down. He calls him. He calls a tax collector, and he says to him, not just good morning, how is life going, but follow me. A despised man, could have been a disgrace to his people, is invited into life with Jesus. To have Jesus as his master. To be a disciple of Jesus. Mark doesn't build the suspense either. He doesn't leave his hanging on, what's this tax collector going to choose? It says immediately that he rose and he followed him. He rose and he followed. 
So Levi, who was known infamously as this tax collector, and known as lots of other things, but though likely none of them very good, he is now changing the trajectory of his life. You see, Levi's call stands out because he was a tax collector, because he was one who would have been despised and disgraced by his own people, and he'll be remembered as a tax collector. As we look back, we'll remember Levi the tax collector. But he also rose and followed Jesus. And once he rose and once he followed, he, didn't, he became more than just a tax collector. He's no longer just Levi the tax collector. He actually becomes more notorious for something else. He is Levi the tax collector and more notoriously now Levi the follower of Jesus. Because of Jesus' gracious call to him, Levi doesn't remain as merely a tax collector, but now he's Levi, disciple of Jesus Christ. I remember one pastor describing to me some of the counseling he was doing in his church, and he described a, a, a horrendous situation among his, a couple that he was counseling where there was an affair and sexual immorality, and, and they were trying to walk in repentance and faith, and yet there was so much brokenness because they thought, how can we walk into a room and the whispers not start spreading throughout the room about what we have done and what has happened here? And I'll never forget the counsel he gave when he said, there may not be a time when you walk into a room and those whispers don't happen. But don't let that be the only whisper that goes around. Let your repentance be more notorious than your sin. Now, there may be a lot of things that people are going to remember about our lives. They might remember our job. They might remember our family. They might remember our our economic situation. They might remember our earthly power. They might remember our earthly situation. They might remember some of our sin. But Jesus invites us into life with himself, to submit our lives under his, to take him on as our master, to be his disciple, to follow after him. We do not have to let all that's said about us be all of those other things. We can rise and follow Jesus. And by responding to Jesus' gracious invitation into his life, we can be more notorious for our repentance, more notorious for our following after Jesus than anything else that marks our lives. That's the authority of Jesus' call. He takes fishermen who are now known as disciples. He takes those who are demon-possessed, and now they're known as those who have been healed by Jesus. He takes tax collectors, and he makes them his followers. And he can do the same for us, too. Insert your situation, rise and follow Jesus, and be more notorious for something else. Levi was known for much, but he quickly and he joyfully became known as one of Jesus' followers. In fact, it seems that he's so joyous about life with Jesus that he, he throws a party. Verse 15. And as he reclined at his table, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, Mark seems to present this as Jesus playing the host, but it's definitely Levi who's taking the initiative and inviting all of his friends, tax collectors and sinners. He wants to tell them, I come, let's come look at this man. There's, there's no one like him. This has been said over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. Like, we've never seen anything like this. Levi's had a taste of that, and so he goes to his friends and he has this party so that they could be in the presence of Jesus. And so when Jesus is with tax collectors and sinners, he, he doesn't just go to this exception tax collector and sinner, Levi. Jesus is constantly with tax collectors and sinners. It's not an exception to his ministry. It's part of it. Because this is the people he came for. He came for tax collectors and sinners. And so verse 15, when we read it, we don't think, wow, what is going on here? This is scandalous. 
How could George and Ellen be in the same booth? How could Jesus and tax collectors and sinners be at the same table? And yet, that's definitely how some took it. Verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing here? Jesus is being questioned, and he's being questioned specifically by a religious group, a Jewish religious group, the religious elite of the time. They were known as the Pharisees. They were characterized by strict adherence to Old Testament commandments. So zealous were they for the law that they build laws around laws around laws so that you wouldn't get close to actually breaking the law, at least externally. They cared and had a great concern for ritual purity. They had a great concern for close observance to their traditions. So there were all these sayings that were to protect them from the law, like do this, don't do this. They wanted to keep those as well so that they could stay holy, stay pure. So they had this rabbinic, these teachings, this oral tradition that they wanted to follow as well. And here comes this religious group, this elite group, and they see Jesus. Now they they know about Jesus, right? They they know that he's been in the synagogue teaching as one who had authority. Likely some of them were struck with that same authority. They've seen him heal He healed a paralytic in front of likely some of these Pharisees. And yet they still see a scandal here. They see Jesus with tax collectors and sinners. And they start questioning. And they're only left with questions. I think it's interesting to contrast. Jesus saw Matthew earlier in the passage. And he calls out to him, follow me. Here we have the Pharisees. They see tax collectors and sinners, and and they don't run toward them. They want to get away, and they question Jesus. See, tax collectors and sinners were regarded by Pharisees as as inferior, at least. They don't have an interest in following the religious standards that we have. They're not concerned to obtain these high moral standards. They're not so concerned about ritual purity. seems as if they're running the religious name through the dirt, in the way that they live, and so they thought it's improper for someone who is a teacher, an authority on the law, to be eating with such people, to share a meal and fellowship with such people. And so they questioned Jesus because he was breaking their traditions. He was doing something scandalous. This is unheard of. This is not to be done. He's acting improperly. Surely Jesus is making a mistake, and so we better question his disciples, in fact, of what's going on. But in reality, this scene is much more scandalous than they even know. They might see Jesus at best as an authoritative teacher, eating with tax collectors and sinners. What they are failing to comprehend is that this isn't just another teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners. God has taken on flesh and has come to live amongst humans. And he goes right to the broken and sinful and he eats with them. Holy God has taken on flesh, is eating with sinners. Not just an authoritative teacher. They thought that was scandalous enough, but they don't even have a clue It's way more scandalous than they understand because they underestimate who Jesus is. And in dining with sinners, what's on display? Not the scandal itself, but grace. Grace that would come to sinners like this and sit with them and eat with them. That's the scandal, that God would be that gracious to sit and eat with sinners. And this scene is but a foretaste, is it not? Here's holy God eating with sinful people, pouring out grace just by being there having them in his presence. But Mark doesn't linger there. You know, we saw that he was teaching by the sea. We, we get no content of that teaching. 
We see that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. We get no content of their conversation. It's like if we could only peer in and see what Jesus was saying. How was he ministering to him? Mark doesn't focus on any of that. Instead, he turns to how Jesus answers. And he does this in these, both of these stories this morning. In verse 17, he says, When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician. It's those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he eats with them because that's part of his mission. As the Son of God, he came for sinners. And so he dines with them. He gets close to them. He, he enjoys intimacy with them. I love that Jesus comes and he's eating and drinking. And this is one of his constant activities. So maybe it justifies that as a constant activity for me. But at least I connect with him there. Like Jesus came eating and drinking. I can do that as well. I can follow him in that. But here he is with sinners, because that's what doctors do. They go with their, where the sick patients are, and, and he clarifies, right? It's not just about being sick and a doctor. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but, but sinners. That's what he's doing. What a reply. What a shot. I'm here for those who are in need. Now, think about this. Out of the two groups, sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees, who are the ones who are sick? Who are the ones that are sinners? Pharisees? Tax collectors? We have to say, right? I mean, one group is actually labeled tax collectors and sinners, so we have to say that, right? Like, if there's a group out of the two that's sick, we're going to go with those. But those who should have been well-versed in the Old Testament, like the Pharisees, all of us today who know the truth of the Old Testament should know who the righteous are. If we don't, Psalm 14 helps us out. Right? This is in the Old Testament. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is anyone who understand, who seek after God. What's the conclusion? They've all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is repeated in another psalm. No one who does good, not even one. So who's the righteous according to the Old Testament? None. And if you knew the law well, you would start to recognize like, oh, I can't do this. The law exposes our need before a holy God. It exposes and displays a God who is holy, and it exposes people who are sinful. It points us to our need of a redeemer. That's why when Jesus comes, it's such a big deal. Because we can't do this on our own. The law should have exposed everyone as a sinner it should have shown that none are righteous, not even one. Not even one. And so the Pharisees and the tax collectors and sinners alike are among those who are not righteous, but rather would be categorized as sinners. And so what Jesus isn't doing in his answer is he isn't affirming that, hey, there's one group that needs me here and the other group doesn't because they're already righteous. He isn't doing that. What he is affirming is this, that not everyone here acknowledges their need. Not everyone is aware of their need of a physician here. Not everyone knows that they're sick. One group is. One group is aware of their need, and only one group. And there's only one group with Jesus. Only one group is in the right place here, inside sharing fellowship, and another group is outside questioning. One group is in the right place, one group is not. One group is in the place to get the help that they actually need for their souls, and one group is on the outside throwing questions into that. 
And so Jesus' answer shows us that the door to getting well, to forgiveness, to life with Jesus, is the door of need. The requirement is to be a sinner. Jesus came to call sinners. That's everyone. That's all of us. But are we aware that it's us? Do we know that's me? I'm sick. Do we know our need? One theologian said this, Therefore God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, restores life to only the dead, sanctifies only the sinners, gives wisdom only to the unwise fools. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched, and he gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Therefore, no proud saint, no wise or just person can become God's material, and God's purpose cannot be fulfilled in him. He remains in his own work and makes a fictitious, pretended, false, and painted saint of himself. That is, a hypocrite. The symptoms of our sickness are everywhere. They're displayed in our relationships and how we treat one another. They're displayed in our finances and how we spend or hold on to our money. They're displayed in our speech. What's in our heart is going to come out in the way we speak. It's a tattletale to what's really going on, to what we really believe and trust in, to whether we think that there's a need or not. The physician came to grant free and comprehensive healing. And the only requirement to see this physician is that we be sick, that we be in need. I love what one author says. He said that all you need is nothing. All you need is need. That's profound. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. And we start thinking about, well, how do I come to Jesus? And we have all these answers, and likely most of them are wrong. Because what we need to start with is not all these things that we need to do to come to Jesus, but we need to start with our need before Jesus. Jesus' answer in verse 17 shows that one has to meet no requirement to come to him. There's one requirement, be holy, and we all already failed that. So we can't meet the requirements to come to Jesus, we already failed, and so he came after us. And this frees us then to acknowledge that we have great need for him. So that we can run to him, so that we can accept him, so that we can follow him. All we need is need. The door to coming to Jesus isn't marked righteous. Go through there. It's marked need. Because the righteous, they have no need of a doctor. They don't need to be saved of anything. Jesus came to call sinners. One group here is close to Jesus. They're with Jesus. They're the group that don't come with their own righteousness. They come despised and disgraced. There's another group that comes with their own righteousness and thinks, why in the world would we sit with people like this? They don't come in need. One group comes with nothing. Nothing but need, nothing but intrigue to see and know who Jesus is. And just like there's a connection between being sick and seeing the doctor, there's a connection between need and our closeness to Jesus. One commentator says this, that the whole, that is the well, the healthy, they may give the physician a good word, but the sick alone know how to prize him. There's a connection 
between our need and our closeness to Jesus. You're not going to stick close to something you don't prize highly. But if you're sick, and if you're needy, you're going to try to be close to the one that can make you well. And if he is who he says he is, then you're going to prize him highly because he's going to do that very thing, make you well. How needy are we? How needy are you? Only when we know that we're sick can we rightly prize Jesus as the doctor. Only when we know that we're a sinner can we rightly prize Jesus as Savior. The question comes, why does he eat like this? He says, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You think, like, this is pretty good, right? Jesus gives really good answers. Maybe the questioning would stop, but it doesn't seem like it gets shut down often for the Pharisees. They, their questioning didn't end over the issue of eating with tax collectors. We see another, one, another issue crop up in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Again, like Jesus came eating and drinking. This is a profound thought that he comes, he's embodied, he's, he's human, and he does human things, normal things, ordinary things like eating and drinking, and he does it around a table with people. He's a man who's living rightly in God's good creation, and he's eating and drinking. But everywhere he goes and he eats and drinks, controversy follows. All the time, controversy follows Jesus. He was scrutinized over his eating habits, scrutinized over his meals. He eats and he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. Oh, you're not fasting. Why aren't you fasting? Or who are you eating with? Why are you eating with them? Everywhere you go, he's just doing a normal thing and he's constantly scrutinized for it. And I think there's something there, right? Make no mistake, like meals are strategic for Jesus. Eating, normal, everyday table, eating with people at a table is strategic mission for Jesus. And I think that's part of the reason it's constantly under attack. Something is happening at meals around the table. Acceptance, fellowship, closeness, intimacy. He's confronting sin. He's welcoming sinners. It's a strategic place in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's under attack. I love what one author said. He said, Jesus spent his time eating and drinking, a lot of his time. He was a party animal. It's probably the first time you've heard of Jesus as a party animal. Maybe not the party animal that you're thinking. Just keep it contained to the scripture, right? But his mission, his strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. Like, he did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Or grape juice, whatever. And the Pharisees took a second on that one. (laughs) Probably with a glass of wine, okay? The Pharisees consumed with observing their traditions, are constantly thinking of what's my obligation here. They're constantly thinking like, well, what's required of me here? And they're so caught up in this self-imposed obligation that they fail to see how Jesus is constantly inviting people into life. They're so concerned with looking through obligation that they miss the invitation that Jesus presents them with over and over and over again by being there and by not rebuking them or demolishing them. They're too busy thinking about what traditions have been broken and which lines have been crossed that they can't see that the line has moved toward them in love. Religious people are like that. Often concerned, like, where's the line? Rather than seeing Jesus has moved the line to come toward us that we might be with him forever. They're looking at obligation, not invitation. And this comes out in their question of fasting. 
thinking only of obligation. They question, well, why does Jesus and his disciples, why don't they fast? The Pharisees, Jesus told a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. They were praying in Luke 18, and the Pharisee gets up and he prays, like, I fast twice a week. So it seems like a, a decent line to cross. Like, okay, we think the Pharisees were fasting twice a week. So they had a regular fast. John's disciples, we have no explanation for why they're mentioned or why they here are here talking as, as fasting. Maybe John was arrested and they're in mourning and loss and crying out to God. So maybe that's why they're fasting. Or maybe kind of taking on this wilderness lifestyle with John. They're, they're fasting in light of that. We know John ate locusts and honey, so it wasn't as if his life was a life marked by fasting necessarily. We get him marked more as eating weird foods. But John's disciples are thrown in, and we don't know the specifics of why that is. Maybe they wanted to throw some weight, like, hey, we knew they were fasting while John's in prison, but they're fasting and we're fasting, so why aren't you guys? Maybe that's why they did it. But what they're getting at is, how could he do this? Aren't, they're, they're criticizing Jesus and his moves here and his disciples. But the reality is, is this is not a matter of obedience to the law. You look in the Old Testament, you look to the law, it requires one fast a year, one day, and that's the Day of Atonement. That's their fast day. So for the Pharisees then to kind of criticize and question this, it wasn't a matter of, of keeping the law. It wasn't a matter of obedience to God's law and moral obligation. It was a matter of tradition. Very different. Different weight, different authority associated with that than God's law, His word, His expressed will. In other words, they're insisting upon something beyond what God insists Jesus often says this of the Pharisees, right? They're, they're, they're putting more weight on. They're giving you burdens that aren't actually there. They're insisting on something that's not there. And their critique comes from their insistence that we do more than what God has said to do. Now, Jesus could have done this. He could have gone to the Old Testament and said, we don't fast because it's not the Day of Atonement yet. So we'll wait for that, then we'll fast. But he doesn't do that. He goes further. Graciously, he goes further. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus illustrates his, his answer, like, hey, we're, we can't, we're not. And he gives them a wedding illustration here. At a wedding, we know this. This is intuitive, right? A wedding is a celebration. Like, it's a time of joy, it's a time of feasting. It's a time of dancing. It's a time of singing. All those things should be included. It's a time of celebration. Fasting during a wedding would have been unthinkable to that culture. It should be unthinkable to us, right? Why are we putting on sackcloth and ashes when we should be putting on our best and enjoying the party? At a wedding, that's what we do. Put on your good attire. Don't put on the sackcloth. Like, don't heap ashes on your head. Like, put some oil on your head. Like, make sure you look good. And all presumably you put together because we're coming to celebrate. We're, we're there to sing. We're not there to wail. We're there to feast. We're not there to fast. Why? Because the, the, the wedding party's there. And what is happening there is a joyous thing, a good thing. And that's what Jesus' illustration turns out. The turning point is in the presence of the groom. Is if the groom's there, then the party is on. It's still ongoing. If he's gone, then maybe we can talk about fasting. But if he's there, there should be no fasting. Remember what Jesus said when he arrives and he begins his ministry. He, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, in me, in my appearance, in my going forward in ministry, the, the kingdom of God is present. It's here. So the party, it's on. It's not a time of fasting. This is a time of feasting. 
This is a time for celebration. So Jesus' disciples, to be fasting while he's with them, would be to respond wrongly to who he is. Would be to miss Jesus' identity. In the birth narratives that we see in, in the Gospel of Luke, we see all sorts of responses to the announcement and even the birth of Jesus. Right? Mary's pregnant. She goes to her cousin. John the Baptist is in the womb, and he leaps for joy at the coming of Jesus because of who he is. Then Mary bursts out into song. Zechariah bursts out into song. The angels come and announce the birth of Jesus, and they cry out in song. Right? There's a multitude of them, and they just all singing, glory to God in the highest. Like the shepherds, they, they leave their work. They, they leave the, the flocks and they, they run. They hurry and they go see Jesus and who this is because of the news that they'd heard about him. The, the magi, they come and they bring expensive gifts and they give to him because they know who this person is. Like Simeon, as he sees Jesus coming to the, the temple, like he, he blesses him. Like he's been waiting his whole life and he stops waiting. He starts blessing we also see this other character in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, in the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. There's a good reason to fast. Like the, the Redeemer hasn't come. He's not there yet. But in coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Oh, she stops what she's doing and she starts giving thanks. The redemption that you've been waiting for is here. It's in Jesus. Why? Why do all of these respond the way they do? Because Jesus is there. All their responses are wedding-like responses. They're right responses because they recognize Jesus in their midst. He's here, so we leap in the womb. He's here, so angels sing from the heavens. He's here, so we give great gifts. We don't move on and try to find somebody else. He's here, so we stop fasting. We start thanking God. That's what's going on here. For the shepherds to remain in their field, for the magi to move on without giving their gifts to Jesus, for Anna to continue to fast as Jesus comes in would be to miss Jesus. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're missing him. They're not seeing him for who he is. Their question is betraying their unbelief. Their question is betraying their unbelief in Jesus as someone whose very presence should bring great joy to all who are around, those who are near and those who are far. They're thinking only of obligation when Jesus is there offering redemption apart in the kingdom of God the invitation to life with God, to being part of the kingdom of God is in front of them. They shouldn't be fasting. They should be feasting. Don't fast when a wedding feast is in front of you. And that's what they're doing. And Jesus goes on to say, it's kind of like this, verse 21. It's kind of like the old garment, unshrunk cloth. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And not only in this illustration of Jesus does the garment rip, tear, that, so the original tear remains, but he says something worse happens. It actually makes it worse than it was originally. It's worse than it was at the start. So to ignore the unique identity of Jesus is to harden in some ways that's going to be more detrimental 
lead to more brokenness. Or we could say it this way, verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. Right? New cloth on an old garment, new wine and old wineskin. And what is he saying? They're incompatible. And if you try to do this, it's going to lead to more brokenness, not healing. They don't work together. They're incompatible together. Jesus is in their midst. And so to miss, to miss who he is, to miss what he's doing, to miss his invitation, and to just continue on with life as usual, with righteousness as usual, with traditions as usual, with doing everything our way as usual, is the wrong response and will only lead to more brokenness. In the arrival of Jesus, something new is happening. Something new is here. And that something new, that person of Jesus, warrants a different response. Jesus concludes verse 22 by saying, New wine is for fresh wineskins. Requires something completely different, something new. Now, Mark has been focusing on the content in his gospel. His content has been focused on who Jesus is, his unique identity. Because Mark knows that if we, if we can gaze at and know the unique identity of Jesus, then that changes everything. That changes how we live life. That changes how we respond to other people. It changes everything. And so he, he's trying to focus us in to see Jesus so that everything else can be transformed. That's what Mark desires. That's what God desires. Jesus' arrival destroys the old cloth. The old cloth of the Pharisees, made up of their legalism and their man-made traditions, that is ripped apart to shreds. Jesus' arrival is the arrival of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that bursts old wineskins, the religion that's too brittle for forgiveness and grace that's scandalous like Jesus' is. New wine is for fresh wineskins. You don't mix old wineskins and new wine. That is to ruin both. They don't mix So you don't mix them, you replace them. New wine, something new, something joyous, something good. Let's get something new to hold it. Toss out the old. So Jesus' veiled answer, I think, leads us to question ourselves. Hopefully it led to the Pharisees questioning themselves. One commentator said this, that the question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration Whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. I think the question is the same for us. Are we going to become new receptacles? Ready for Jesus to let his life envelop ours rather than vice versa? Or are we going to try to do some patchwork of let's try to blend in his life and my life and see how that works out for us. But hopefully maintain the original integrity that I had. I just had a few tears anyway. As we gaze at Jesus, and Jesus in Mark's gospel, let us not miss the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. When he comes, something entirely new and different is happening. Something that shakes all of history. Something that's going to shape and transform all of life. And we don't want to miss his unique unique identity, but, but we must not also miss what that changes. In other words, we can't just see Jesus as the unique Son of God and then go on as life as usual. If we see Jesus rightly, 
life can never go on as it usually did. It will never be the same. It can't be the same. That's to burst. We can't seamlessly pass Jesus' life into our life. We can't pour Jesus' way of life into our old way of life and expect them to be compatible. They're not. New wine calls for new wineskins. So here's what we need. We need to be made new. Need. That's good news. Jesus says, the ones who are in need are the ones he came to save. Brothers and sisters, all we need is need. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? God, show us our need. Show us the sin in our hearts, in the ways that we think, in the ways that we speak and treat other people. God, show us the ways that we are like Pharisees, constantly condemning other people in our own minds and thanking you maybe even that we're not as bad as them. God, will you take that desire to compare ourselves to others and pat ourselves on the back, God? Will you break that in us? God, some of us are tax collectors and are running roughshod over what you consider to be right and good, and we know it, and maybe even we don't care. Will you break our hearts of that? And all of us, whether we are more like a Pharisee or more like a tax collector, God, I pray that we would get up out of our booth and follow you. If it's the first time that thought has occurred to us, or if we've been following you for a long time, God, our need for you does not end. Our need for your help to live a holy life, your help to love other people like we love ourselves, our need to follow after you, God, we need your help every day. Will you continue to work in our lives and may that work explode into rejoicing and joy. We need to not be the same and, and we need to be like Levi or Matthew and start using our tables like Jesus did as a place to reach out to others, as a place to invite them 
to Christ, God, will you expand our hospitality, even the way we use our home, the way we use our table, and the little normal moments of life, things we're going to do anyway, like eat a meal. I pray that that would become an act of worship. I pray that that would become an act of purpose for your kingdom and that we would use that well, our lives, our homes, our tables, Lord. Use us to proclaim your good news to the people who are around us. Be glorified in us, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Even though we forget you and walk in our own way, you do not stop pursuing us. Thank you so much for that pursuit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.